This is episode number 319. Why do we help others with Michael Paris? Welcome. My name is Oleg Lohid, and this is the Overcoming Odds podcast, where you get a glimpse into the stories of individuals who've overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving their personal success. This podcast was built by you and for you to help you overcome adversity, suffering, and struggle in achieving your fullest potential. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to make a few quick announcements. First one being an invitation to all of our listeners to our upcoming event in Austin, Texas called Survive to Thrive, Face Your Fears. What this is, if this is your first time hearing about it, is a three-day experience starting on September 23rd where you'll get a chance to hear stories from speakers from all over the world as well as be a part of breakout sessions that are intended to help you identify the origins of your fears and transform them into strengths. If you'd like to know more details regarding this upcoming experience, please visit our website at overcomingodds.today where you'll be able to find the latest details. The second announcement that I wanted to make is in regard to our work, and that is if our work has had any form of impact in your life, please consider supporting our cause by either making a contribution through our website at overcomingodds.today or leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Now, let's get back to the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Oleg. I'm so privileged to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you. And I guess we have to thank, or I have to thank Scott Mason as well for introducing the two of us. He's been a great connector, someone that I'm very fortunate to have known for, I think it's going on to three years. Wow. Because with nice. COVID, uh, time became a little bit flat. So it's it <laughs> kind of hard to figure out, you know, it, what today is. And I'm even looking at the calendar. Today is Friday for sure. I was thinking we're still on Thursday. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I just, I want to thank you. I want to thank Scott for bringing this conversation together. This is a topic that I've been curious about for quite some time as far as helping others and where does, where does the desire to help others come from? Why does it appear that certain people have that as a quote-unquote calling and others may not? And so I'm curious to hear from you, and maybe this is the best way that we can even start this conversation today, and that is based on your own experience, where did that come from? Why do you want to help others? Was it your parents? Was it your grandparents or someone else within your family tree or someone completely outside of it that helped you see this is what I want to do with the rest of my life? Yes. Uh, If I really start off, it is with my parents. Uh, I'm a second generation American. My grandparents were immigrants from Italy. They were very, very poor and very needy in their own ways. They were young when they came to this country. And my grandmothers both died very, very young as well. So the stories in our family surrounded the whole issue of how hard certainly one of my grandfathers worked in order to get uh, to survive, really. Mm. 
and um, and the tragedies that took place in the family in general with regard to my parent, both my parents really being in many ways orphaned at a very young age. Um, so that there was this need to take care of one another, this need to take care of oneself. Mm-hmm. And this, uh, this calling that my both parents had to be sensitive to the needs of other people, in part because of their own experience with their parents, and in great part because of the ethos in which they lived. They lived in the Depression, the Great Depression mm-hmm. in the 30s, and then it's World War II. And my father's need to really try to take care of his younger brother as much as he could. My mother's need to take care of herself and really the ways in which she was uh, pushed around, if you will, by foster parents and others who tried to manipulate her. So these stories were kind of the foundation of my very young life. Uh, But then as I look back, I also see that this is really using um, adult information, that I was a highly sensitive child, a highly sensitive person. I'm wired to be highly empathic and highly intuitive. And so whether I liked it or not, I discovered that people were around me and I felt kind of isolated, Mm -hmm. but I also read who they were. I kind of understood some sort of need that they seemed to project through their personality, through their, uh, their, their kind of um, expression. Uh, I often tell the story of a little boy named Nicky who lived in my uh, little housing area in East Cambridge, Massachusetts. And uh, these were little houses and there were apartments mostly. Um, And there was a little area between the houses where I played. And I was only four years old and I would come out and play and just be all by myself. And Nicky would sometimes come out. He was older than I was. And he would come over and smack me. And I (laughs) never understood why this kid was hitting me for no reason whatsoever. He was aggressive for some reason. And even then I sensed some sort of problem at home. And I would cry, of course, as a four-year-old would. And I would cry out, Nikki's mother, Nikki's mother, I would be yelling for her for, to come out and control her child. <laughs> you know? And how many four-year-olds do that? Um, it wasn't, <laughs> you know, the other thing was when I was in, uh, I was in um, uh, kindergarten for a few months before we moved out of Cambridge. And it was a Catholic school kindergarten, a lovely place, nice nuns and everything else. And I remember getting our uh, recess milk, which was uh, assembled on the other side of the room on a shelf. And in those days, little pints, half pints of milk were in cartons that were flat topped and were very easy to spill. So I was getting my uh, carton and it was already open with a straw and I was bringing it across the room and I spilled a little bit of it on the floor, this wooden floor, this ancient wooden floor. And I bent down, took my folded handkerchief out of my pocket and wiped up the mess that I had created. Mm. Wow. (laughs) So, yeah. So what, no, was that out of fear or was that out of uh, being appropriate or what four-year-old does that even today, but is even conscious of doing it? I'm, I'm curious, you know, as you're sharing all of this, 
the desire, it, it seems like a lot of the desire to help others partially came from being able to help yourself first. Would you say that's correct? Yes. Being somewhat independent, I was a middle child. I had an older brother, a younger sister. My mother was busy with, with my younger sister, especially. Um, and also the desire to be a good little boy. There are a lot of us who are wired and we grow up as good little boys, good little girls. Somehow there is this very uh, well-developed ethic in us that we ought to be good. Now, is it out of fear of being punished if we're not? Yeah, a little bit of that. Is it out of the desire to uh, help my parents? A lot of that. Growing up knowing that my parents were needy children themselves, I was conscious of wanting to make their life better. All my life I felt that way. So that was kind of inbred. Now, is that somewhat dysfunctional? Is it somewhat um, codependent? Yes. <laughs> you know, there were, the, there were two sides of every coin. At the same time, there was this great desire to be helpful. And one of the greatest gifts that I was given at birthday or Christmas time was a doctor set. I got, I got a couple of these over the course of my childhood. The doctor set was, <laughs> they're kind of cute. They had uh, little glasses that you'd stick on your nose and um, other little plastic utensils that doctors would use, including a fake stethoscope. And I would play doctor. <laughs> Yeah, I would play doctor with the, and I even have pictures of myself with all my little doctor equipment being the doctor. And from a very early age, maybe five or six, I was wanting to be a doctor. I wanted to help people, heal people, and cure them. Again, I think this is part of being highly sensitive. Um, that grew and continued to grow throughout my life. I went from wanting to be a doctor to being a dentist to then becoming a priest. So all of these are helper kinds of professions and rooted frequently in um, highly sensitive people in general. If you look beyond the, underneath the surface of most people in the helping professions, you'll discover they're highly empathic, highly intuitive, highly intelligent, a desire to really give of themselves and uh, sensitive to the needs of others. Where does that backfire though? Because I, I found that it, in my case, and I don't know what your experience has been like, and I'm curious to hear it, because I'm so, at, as you described, sensitive, highly intuitive, empathic towards other people, I found that the desire to give and to help does not have a limit. And that what I mean by that is that I am willing to go beyond whatever extra mile in order to help a person need or being in need. And I'm curious, the other side of that, where does it backfire? And if so, what have you learned from those instances? Do they make you hold back when it comes to being able to help others? Do you draw kind of imaginary lines saying, okay, I'm going to help this far, but I'm not going to go that far? What, what, is, what is your perspective on that? It's a great question, Oleg, because the the downside of being a highly sensitive person, one of the downsides mm -hmm. is, is boundary issues. We have terrible boundary issues. <laughs> we don't, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, because we are so aware and we absorb so much information all at once, we get really jumbled in our internal workings with regard to boundaries. And we think we ought to be helping people. We have a great deal sometimes of shame that's attached to not helping people. Mm -hmm. uh, we kind of grow up thinking, well, I, I'm supposed to, I should, that should word, which I hate. I ought to help this person because why? Because I'm aware of their need for help and I can do something to help. So the downside is a boundary issue that is very serious because we end up becoming codependent. We end up getting married to people or getting connected to people who are needy. We are um, uh, emotional vampires go after us. We attract narcissists because we listen very well. Uh, so yeah, there, there comes a point at which you, you as a, and I as a sensitive person needs to say, okay, it's not a moral issue that I have a boundary. It's, I need a boundary. It's not a morally wrong to say no to somebody. I can't help you at, at least at this time or to refer them to somebody else who can. Uh, I've learned to do that. And ultimately, highly sensitive people can need to take care of themselves first in order to be of service to others. And this sometimes gets in the way of social obligations, gets in the way of people understanding why is he doing this? Another example, a lot of highly sensitive people get the hangries. In other words, <laughs> they have very high, very fast metabolisms. I do. If I don't eat when I get up, and if I don't eat at 1130 in the afternoon, and if I don't have protein at that time, and again at 530, I'm a wreck. I get dizzy, I get tired, I get angry, I get anxious. Just the way I'm wired, and that's the way a lot of people are. So good. That's nice. What does it mean? It means I have to take care of myself. So if I'm out socially, I have to insist, I'm sorry, I need to eat at 1130. Let's go out early. Oh, okay. Same thing going to dinner. I hardly ever go to dinner with people anymore because a lot of people are eating at six or seven o'clock at night yeah. if i do go out with them i have to eat first and then go out with them so there are ways in which to take care of yourself now emotionally i need to say to myself what in this moment is necessary for me is it necessary for me to reach out and help this person okay it might be how much time what is the signal internally that I've had enough, that it's not going to be going forward in a healthy way. Okay. That's a powerful question. Yeah. And so I need to bring the conversation to a close. Now that's difficult because the people I attract are chatterboxes. They just need to talk. And I, it's hard to interrupt and say, wait a minute, I gotta go. I got to go. I have to think of ways in which to do that. Um, to separate myself and then create another conversation later. Um, so there are ways to do it. Now, a lot of other people who, especially if they're primarily extroverted, love that sort of thing. But the thing is with highly sensitive people in general, we love transcendent conversations like the one we're having right now. We don't talk superficiality. We don't like chit chat. 
We don't care about the weather as much or sports teams, how they're doing or things like that. We may have moments when we do, but in general, we love to go one-on-one -on -one with someone in a conversation that goes deep. And that really takes a lot of energy out of us. Uh, so we have to be aware of that. Even though it, there's a, a, an upside where we get a lot out of it. We really love that sort of thing. I do, I know. So I counteract all that by going into the woods and I take walks all by myself in the woods. And that settles me down and refocuses me. Do you ever feel the guilt or did you ever feel the guilt of being able to as you described earlier, when someone is in need of help, telling them that yet, or this is not the right time, or I will do that later. Do, do, did you ever feel that guilt of wanting to help someone in a given moment, but at the same time, understanding that this is a time where you committed to something else, or this is a boundary that you chose to create for yourself and therefore respecting? Well, fortunately, with, with priesthood, uh, 32 years being a Catholic priest and doing a lot of pastoral counseling and spiritual direction, I, I, very, I was able to train myself to keep things to an hour or 45 minutes in general. And if I'm not able to help someone, I learned ways to say it nicely, such as, wow, you really have something we need to talk about. Unfortunately, I can't talk right now. And so I've never, I learned not to feel guilty about that or ashamed that I couldn't give to my other person what they needed at that moment. Um, I still feel, I still get a little bit compulsive when someone wants to talk to me and they, they either cancel or postpone. And I end up calling them and calling them a few times to make sure that they, they really don't want to talk to me at this time uh, or make an appointment. So I do waste a lot of time that way. Um, it's not always productive. Um, so yeah, the, sh the shame piece does come in when I, when I have come, when, I, when there are competing needs at that moment and I need to help two different people and there by helping both people, there's gonna be a conflict uh, between them. That in the priesthood, especially in the parish ministry, came up on a lot of times. I was doing the right thing for this one and it wasn't the right thing for that one. And then there was conflict with me because I screwed up and made a mess of their lives, they thought, because I wasn't helping each of them the way they wanted. Yeah. Yeah, the only reason why I ask that is because this is something that I've experienced over the years is having the desire to help as many people as I could, but at the same time, also understanding that I'm just one person at the end of the day, right? And as much as I want to be a part of 20 different lives all at once, it's just not feasible. And I, and I found that that guilt and that shame component to be very strong in certain situations. And just like you, <laughs> I would say I'm still learning how to manage that and navigate through it as the best as I could. But I was curious, how do other people do that? How do other people process all that shame and guilt? Because I, I think those are real. The real emotions that come from time to time. And I, I think the only way that I could learn is to be able to pick the brain of other people. Yes. There's a, there, there are two sides. There's the shame and the guilt on one side. And then there's the oxy, oxytocin. Oxytocin, yes. yeah. 
On the other side, mm. when we have a significant conversation with someone, it's like having a drug. It really does influence us much more than everybody else in the world. We are highly influenced by the hormones that are pumped into our system when we're on target. And we have a lot of uh, adrenaline uh, going on at that time. So we don't feel the, any sort of, we may be in pain at that moment, but oh no, when we're in good conversation, yeah. we are on target. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, when we're not, or when we have to make limitations, the other side comes up of the shame which is basically saying that I'm being defective. I'm not living up to my potential or who I am. That needs to be examined and discover where's that shame coming from? Who kind of imposed it upon me? And am I imposing it? Am I imposing it on myself and why? Because I want to be perfect. Ah, there's another answer. There's a lot of perfectionism among those of us who are in the helping world. We're not terribly perfectionistic all the time, but we really want to be there and do it right. And when that's not being done right, whatever definition that is, then we end up being judgmental of ourselves. So there's the need to be right or perfect or in control in that moment, because we know we are clear on something. And then being judgmental when we're not getting it quite right. And that judgment can last a lifetime about certain incidences. I know that I'm still judging myself about stuff that happened 30 and 40 years ago. Why? Because I wasn't right or right enough. I wasn't in control. I might have hurt someone in un unintentionally. And I'm I'm upset that I wasn't perfect. <laughs> mm. Hey, people, we're not perfect. I know that. Yet the emotions that go with it are hard to control. Mm -hmm. Does judgment ever leave us? Or is it always going to be there? Well, judgment is never going to leave us if we're smart. Okay, there's, there's judging situations and judging uh, behavior. These things are extremely important. Uh, judging ourselves uh, in terms of a context, you know, did I fit into this properly? Or did I fit into that properly? Um, judging other people as not as human beings, but in terms of what they're saying to us and where we're seeing the connections. Those are judgments. Yeah. But the judgmentalism, that's different judgmentalism is wanting everything to be perfect and then everything that isn't perfect in our eyes gets a black star and so we're smacking black stars on things or people well let's just take an example let's i'll try to be international rather than national because there is enough <laughs> going on nationally but someone like vladimir putin who doesn't feel judgmental toward vladimir putin at this point whether for good or ill, he is a very unusual character who is doing some interesting stuff in the world that is destroying lives. Now, it's one thing to make a judgment about his behavior. It's another thing to say that he is evil in and of himself. I have found that most people who are, quote, evil or defined as evil are actually mentally ill There's a, or they have a personality disorder. 
there's something going on that we don't know about completely. And to make that judgment is crossing a line in my estimation. Now we can in conversation say nasty things about Hitler and certainly it makes us feel good. It gives us a hit, oh boy, well we're morally superior to this person who did such damage. In the end though, that sort of a thing doesn't really help us or anybody else. We need yeah. to stay with the facts. And that's a very good point. And this is something that I've actually had conversations with other people around. And that's in discussing other individuals, what is the ultimate value that we're gaining from it, right? How does it make us better? How does it help us move forward in knowing what we know? And the other thing that I think none of us will truly ever know is what would it be like for us to be in that position, in any of those positions, and what would we do? Yes, theoretically, we would do things differently. But at the same time, there's no certainty there, right? Because there's so many different influences and influencers that are, that are happening in that moment that it could lead us down a different path. So I, I, I'm in a similar boat as you are. And that's really not trying to judge the book by its cover or its entirety, even though we'd never know the entirety. We're always, I, I, I'm a huge believer that all of us at all times are constantly working off of limited information, period. Because there's the information that you choose to withhold. There's the information that I choose to hold back that may not be revealed. And so the only way that I'm getting that information from you is by making assumptions, which oftentimes don't lead you know, to the best of circumstances the best of places. And I'm curious, one other thing that you mentioned uh, before we got down this, this path was you were talking about helping yourself in order to be able to help other people. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, and based on your experience, why do you think the narrative seems to be slightly different as one ages? Mm. And that is the component of helping yourself first it's, in my opinion, it seems to be forgotten, or it seems to be something that one has to rediscover to bring back in one's life, when really, it sounds like that's the way we were born and raised into a certain point. And then something shifts, something, be something changes, so that the need to help yourself first, no longer becomes the priority, rather, it's on the back burner. And then it becomes about helping other people. What do you think that thing is? Like, why, why is it like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll tell you, well, like I see it all the time and I've seen it for decades. Mm -hmm. And it's a little different for men and for women at, at most of the time because of the way we're wired as men and women. Uh, for a lot of men, for example, it's the job. It's their career. Their career becomes God. Or their career is so important that it, it's, it has to come first so that the, you can climb the corporate ladder. It's the way our corporations are, are structured right now. There's a lot of toxic communication and toxic structure in our uh, corporate world today. And so once you get into that, you get touched by the toxicity or by the, um, the need to climb uh, the ladder. The second thing that happens with men is they get married. A lot of men get married and then have children. And they've been told by our culture and by religion, oh, men are supposed to take care of their families. 
well, yes, of course, but, but at the same time, not to the detriment of themselves. For women, I found that careers can be something that's extremely important, but relationships become important so that a lot of women end up getting into very difficult relationships with other men uh, or, or with other women, and they are emotionally tied up and they don't put themselves first. Then if women have children, that natural desire to take care of children is in most women. They let themselves go in order to take care of their kids and their family. So those the career and family seem to be the, the, the tipping points for a lot of people as they get older. Um, and then when we really age, like I'm 70 years old, and so if I had gotten married and had children and grandchildren, it's the grandchildren that seem to come first. Uh, but very often as we get much older, it is what we're being told by doctors about our health that comes first and not necessarily our spiritual inner selves so that we end up being preoccupied by physicality, by who we are physically uh, in terms of the things that go wrong, like high blood pressure or whatever, and not so much sometimes in our in, with our inner souls, which we need to keep fostering. And we see this in the great stories of saints in the past who lived to be very old, but they took care of their inner selves first, even though their outer shell was falling apart. They didn't care. Now, I'm not recommending that, but I'm just saying, you know, that's a, a preoccupation that can uh, counteract the taking care of ourselves first. Are you married? I am married. I'm married to a man who, whom I met uh, nine years ago. We'll be married eight years uh, in November. He's about my age and uh, we've, uh, it's, he's a great partner in life. And he, he, and he, he makes me a better human being. First marriage. Oh yeah. Yeah. We got married for each of us got married at 62. Oh, and wow. we, yeah, we never were married before. I was, of course, a priest, and then I left the priesthood when I was about 58. Uh, four years later, I met, oh, three years later, I met Jay. Uh, and he had various uh, jobs, and he was busy with his own career and life before this. He had never gotten married uh, himself or gotten connected with anybody long term. And, um, and then we found each other, and we seemed to meet each other's general needs, even though we have the challenge of living together for the first time as a couple, each of us, and making those adjustments, which is another factor. Yeah, 62 years worth. <laughs> yeah. You know, so how do you take care of yourself and still be attentive to the other person's needs? It's a balancing mm -hmm. act. It never ends every day. Mm -hmm. How do you look at the, how do you look at that particular component? Is it you're making sacrifices compromise or is it something completely different when it comes to that well it's yes to both of those you're making sacrifices you're making compromises but the biggest thing is communication it's important for people in especially in intimate relationships to talk about what is on their mind ask questions and engage the other person in conversation at the right times now that doesn't always happen with us because I'm very headstrong and I can start a conversation that Jay may not want to start with yet. 
So I have to wait until he's ready um, and vice versa. Same thing happens with me. So we are um, constantly making those compromises. It's, I love the analogy of creating a smooth rock. If you've ever bought a rock that's totally smooth, it's almost like a, uh, an egg shape. How does that happen? Well, it happens by putting a lot of rough rocks into a drum and let the drum spin, spin, spin until all the rough edges of all the rocks are chipped off and everything becomes smooth. And that's the way it is in relationships. We come in with our rough edges and we chip them away, whether we like it or not, <laughs> in time. And hopefully by the time we're old enough, we've uh, gotten smooth and we're becoming much more alike in many ways. How does it work in terms of goals and aspirations though? Do you find that in your case, especially considering the set of circumstances, which I hope you would agree, it's, it's uh, slightly different than I think most, right? To be able to experience marriage at the age that you did, to be able to still continue aspiring and achieving the different things that you do, while also knowing that there is now a collective goal, collective set of things that you want to accomplish. Does, so I guess my question is, does it put your things on the back burner? Are there certain things that you just have to give up due to time, due to the compromise that you have to make in not only meeting your needs, but also the other person's needs, as well as the needs of the collective? How does that work? Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's a bit of a minefield, but, <laughs> you know, at, at times, uh, there's, first it starts with mutual respect. And if it's something's really important to the other person, then I, you need to say, okay, I will make the compromise and I will do this because the other person really needs and wants it at this time. And I can see that it takes perception too. you know, you kind of see that this is not frivolous. Uh, this is something that's important. Uh, and at the same time, he sees the same thing in me. Uh, choices that I have to make with regard to my own business as a life coach uh, and spiritual director and be insistent upon things. Sometimes I spend time with people for free and he's saying, he says, oh, why aren't you getting paid for that? And it's because I, this is what I do. I just do this for people who are in need at that moment. And he understands, although not totally, and I understand his point of view, but not totally. And living in that kind of in-between stage of understanding, but not totally, is important. And then the other thing is to really ask myself, at least, I can only speak for myself, what is my spirit, what is the spirit saying to me through this situation? What is the need that I have that I can maybe meet in a different way? without interfering with his needs? How am I able to um, maneuver uh, all of the factors that are being juggled at this time in order to create uh, a situation where I am meeting my needs and doing what I need to do for him and for the collective? That's, and it is, I can give you examples but I don't want to go into too many details, but there are lots of, one example is just doing dirty dishes. And I, you know, 
I, I don't always like to have to do them after I've done all the cooking. And Jay is stepping up to the plate more and more to help me with that. But sometimes he's not feeling well, he's got some health issues. And so he's uh, not able to help me. And I have to say, okay, he's just not feeling up to it. Just shut up, Michael, and do the dishes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Wow. That would have saved many relationships for me. If I were to, <laughs> if yeah. I were at the point when it came to um, them, but I, I'm curious as as we wrap this up, what are some ways that people can connect with you? Do you have anything that people can be a part of? Different workshops? I know you mentioned that at the beginning that people can take part in courses, anything like that. Well, I'm I love speaking in groups. So the first thing is that if someone has a group that they belong to. I can help them with a seminar. I can give a talk. I can talk for an hour on just or less on just about anything and get into the deeper subject matter behind the topic so that I will give value to your audience. That's number one. So get me on your list to be a speaker, uh, especially with Zoom. It makes it very easy. Secondly, Buy my book. Here's my book. I'll show my book off. Uh, Life Interrupted, Taking Charge After Everything Has Changed. It's a spiritual, self-help, uh, semi-autobiographical book that I wrote uh, when I left the priesthood to help people realize that they are their own best rescuer to stop waiting for some knight on, in shining armor to come and help them. They have all the tools they need, and they're all in this book. Uh, the third thing is check out my website. Uh, it's www.mparisilifecoach, all one phrase, mparisilifecoach.com. And there are a lot of my blogs. I'm a writer. There are a lot of videos. I like to talk in front of a camera at times, very short videos, but all having to do with subject matter that's extremely important for everyone that will really change people's lives. You can also see my artwork. You can behind me, there are a couple of my paintings, but I'm also an artist and that is uh, on my uh, website as well. Um, and I, I guess those are the three major things that just keep me in mind that I am here to help. I'm here to help you. Isn't that the theme? Um, but I really can, and I can really listen carefully to what your deeper needs are. So hire me as your life coach. It's, I've got a couple of packages I can talk to you about, but more importantly, I am on LinkedIn and all my information is there in terms of my contact information. Check me out there and think about having a life coach to help you through the obstacles that are really keeping you from feeling successful in life. I can really help you with those things and bring about healing of trauma and of the ways in which we are thinking that are sabotaging ourselves. Thank you all for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. If you haven't done so already, please consider subscribing to our future episodes so you can receive all of the latest content. Also, if you like what you heard, consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Facebook, or Google so more people can find these inspiring and courageous conversations. Once again, we thank you for listening and we'll look forward to having you next time.